you have a copy of God's Word, I invite you to turn with me to the book of Hebrews this morning. Hebrews chapter 12. Last week we celebrated the resurrection of Christ and our current sermon series, The Community of Christ, at least to me, felt like it hit a climax. It felt like it hit a natural end point. But I still have one more sermon to go in this series. And so as I was thinking about it Sunday afternoon and I was talking to my community group a little bit, uh, my thought was that I was going to email the elders this week and say, you know, it really felt like it came to an end. Can I just move on to Luke now? Uh, but then as, I, as, as the week kind of went on and I, and I got to thinking about this passage more and I, I thought about uh, the previous weeks of this series, I felt like that, that actually it would be good to, to finish out this series on the text that we had chosen together, that it would... Lord willing, provide for us a helpful and challenging direction for our future as a church. And so this morning, I want to build on everything that Pastor Joe and Pastor Richard and myself have been sharing the last several weeks from the book of Hebrews, specifically about what it means to be living and serving together as the community of Christ. And Pastor Joe started us off as we saw uh, that from Hebrews that we are saved by the sacrifice of Christ. That Jesus shared in our humanity in order to give up his life on behalf of humanity. He was satisfied. He was the one who satisfied God's wrath toward our sin, the sin of his people. And thus for those who have faith in Christ, we know that we are now secure in the kingdom of Christ. We no longer are warned with fear and trepidation to stay away from God who is holy that we just sung about, who is holy and and could break out towards those that are not holy. Instead, we have been brought near to a holy God by the blood of Christ. And being brought near, we have been brought near into a kingdom that is unshakable by anything in this world, including our own fears and trepidations. And therefore, we ought to worship the living God with awe and with reverence. In that kingdom now, we saw that we should be seeking to be stirred up by the people of Christ. That is what Pastor Richard preached for us. Our lives are not simply meant to be lived with a vague connection to the people of God. We are to be intimately and sacrificially committed to one another, giving exhortations to one another to hold fast to our confession of faith in Christ. That means getting close to one another in ways that reveal our sins and our weaknesses so that we can be encouraged and built up and rebuked and stirred on to love and good works. This life in covenant community will naturally lead us to make sacrifices after the example of Christ. Just as he forsook all of his rightful glory to enter into the despised, the desolate, and the dangerous places outside the camp. So we are called to sacrifice and and to go out to him that we might minister alongside him. Fellowshipping with him and therefore with one another as well. Fellowshipping with one another in ways that display loving hospitality hospitality and faithfulness to the gospel of Christ. We are to help one another live free from idols like sexual immorality and greed for wealth, even as we proclaim the saving name of Jesus. And all of this is done 
as we live with a hopeful, steadfast assurance that we are shepherded by the risen Christ. We have confidence as, that He will equip us with everything that is needed for knowing and doing the will of God the Father. Christ Himself, by His death and His resurrection, has secured for us every spiritual blessing, every resource that we need to live as His church, committed in community with one another. And so this morning, I want us to hold in our minds, just for a minute, all of that glorious calling that we've seen over the last several weeks. I want us to to think about the weight of what it means to live as the people of God together as a local church. And as we feel the weight of those things, if you're like me, you will ask the question, who can do that? Who, who Who is fit for that task? And what we see this morning is that we are able to be fit because of Jesus Christ and because of the very practical exhortations that Hebrews gives us in chapter 12. Last week's sermon on on the risen Christ was was not just a climax, but for this morning, a hinge. It is in Him that the resources are found for us to press forward. But practically, how do we do that? How do we acquire the blessings, the grace of Christ, the risen Christ, that we can live as His people? That's what we want to see this morning in these opening verses of Hebrews chapter 12. Now, if you've read the book of Hebrews, you know that chapter 11 has been one long, massive illustration of those who lived lives of faith in God. Though many never saw the full fulfillment of his promises, though some experienced miraculous victories, while others endured brutal suffering and death, all lived by faith in the promises of God. So so based on that and the argument that he's been building, he says in chapter 12, verse 1, Therefore, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. This is God's word. Hear it and believe. In these verses we're told not just what the life of those in the community of Christ should look like, but how we should actually go about living that way. And so we're, we're given some things to remember, some things to act on, some things to believe, some things to do. First of all, we need to understand, we need to remember, we need to keep fixed in our minds this truth. We have a race to run. We have a race to run. That is the central imperative command at the end of verse 1. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Now, now what is that race? What, what kind of a race is it? Well, simply put, it's the Christian life. Uh, by, he's just employing this race imagery as a metaphor for what it means to live the life that God has called us to in Christ. Furthermore, this, this race is a race of faith. Again, this is what Hebrews has been building up to all through chapter 1 through chapter 11, this exhortation. He's been showing in his opening chapters why we should trust God, why we should believe His promises after all that He has done for us in Christ. And then in chapter 11, 
11, he showed us how these people who didn't even know Christ, how they had lived faithfully before God, trusting his promises. And now how much more us? How much more should we believe the promise, knowing that we have seen the fulfillment of that promise in the coming of the promised Messiah? This is, the, this is the, the race that he is talking about. The race of living the Christian life, of doing so by faith. But, but what does this race look like? How should we think about it? First of all, it's a race that's been established. It's a race that's been established. You'll notice he says, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. It's important that we understand this is not a race of our own design. We don't get to decide what the race looks like. The, the, the idea of being set before us describes a course that has already been laid out. It's already been established by the racing officials. There are rules to running a race. You don't get outside your lane. You don't veer off course. You don't cut across the field halfway through. You stay on track or else you're disqualified. Likewise, the Christian life is not one where we get to set the rules. We don't get to set the boundaries. God himself has done that for us. He has laid out the course that we are to run. And so despite what you hear on television shows, what uh, popularly is believed as you mature and get older, it is not your job to find yourself. It is not your job to figure out who you are. God has told you, if you are a Christian, who you are. Read Ephesians chapter 1. He's told you who you are, and He's told you what you should do with your life. Make disciples for the glory of Jesus Christ. You've been saved, you've been redeemed, you've been loved, you've been adopted in Christ. Therefore now go and make disciples of Christ. That is the great calling of your life. That's who you are and what you are to do. But that's going to look differently in every one of our lives because God has made all of us unique. He's given us all gifts and talents and abilities. But all of those things are not just there for our benefit. They're not just there for our good. They're not just there for us to earn a paycheck with. They are there for us to bring glory to the risen Christ by making disciples of his name. We are called in this race that God himself has established to serve him with all of the gifts and the blessings and the uniqueness that he has given to us. That's what our life is about, about serving the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the course, that's the race that has been established by God. But more than that, it's a race that's not just established, it's a race we see that requires endurance. We see here that the race that God has called us to run is a race that requires endurance. We need need to, to understand that despite the athletic imagery, despite the inherent competitiveness that I know exists in some of you, the race that we're called to run is not about who gets there first. In fact, most of us don't want to get there first. Okay? Getting to the end means death, in case you don't, don't get the metaphor. Okay? That's the finish line. Death and therefore life with God. Some of you may be so sick of this sinful world that yeah, you're thinking, I want to get there first. I want to go there now, today. But again, God is the one who's established the course. What we see is that this is a race that is not a sprint, it's a marathon. It requires endurance and perseverance. Think about the fact that there are some people, and they show up to a race like the Boston Marathon, they're there to win. They run marathons all the time. But most of the people there, they're not there to win, they're there just to finish. That's what they want to do. They, they, they've ran in smaller races and smaller marathons, and now they're thinking, okay, this is the height, this is the big one. I just want, I just want to cross that finish line. 
And frankly, that's what the race of the Christian life is about. It's not about who's running faster than somebody else. It's not about who gets to the end and gets the, the blue ribbon or gets the medal or what, whatever the prize is. It's about enduring. It's about not going off course. It's about not falling off the track. It's about not falling and cracking your face on the pavement, splattering blood everywhere. It's about faithfully running the race that God has set for us. It's about finishing the race. It's about persevering to the end. And as I think about that, that is such a timely message because there are so many today who are not finishing the race. They, that they start off declaring their faith in Christ. They, 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 they hear the starter gun go off and they perhaps have maybe even run beside you and me. Certainly we have many running alongside us on a national scale. What we see is one by one them giving up the race. Denying the confession that they once made. Veering off course. Sometimes in doctrinal error. Sometimes in sexual immorality. You name it. But they, they stop running. They do not endure. They do not persevere. And Hebrews is saying that we ought dare not imitate those runners. We need to look back to those that did fall. That did mess up. You read through Hebrews chapter 11 and what you will find is no perfect example. What's amazing to me is that there are actually a couple of guys in the Old Testament that nothing bad is ever said about. Now we know that they're sinners because we're all sinners. We know they made mistakes, but the Bible doesn't tell us their mistakes. Guess what? Hebrews doesn't put them in that chapter. We might wonder why and speculate and one day when we get to heaven we actually told who wrote Hebrews. Maybe we can ask him. But here's the point I want you to get. There are some people in there that live pretty cruddy lives. But at the end, they demonstrated faith in God. And there are some of us here, we have tripped and we have fallen. We have smacked our nose open on the pavement. And I hope you understand that God intends for us as a community to come alongside them, to slow down in our run, to come alongside them, to lift them up and say, Let's get back in the race. Let's keep going. Let's not just lay there. Let's not roll off to the side and just throw our hands up and say, I'm done. This is a race that requires endurance. And he has called us together as the community of faith to be helping one another run for all our worth. We're not called to meander. We're not called to stop and smell the roses and pick flowers or lollygag. God has set for us a course and he has said, run, run for your life. How do we run well though? I mean, that's, the, that's always the question, right? Even if we understand what that calling is, how do we do it? And God does not leave us hanging and wondering that. He tells us in the rest of these verses and the first thing that we have to recognize if we're going to be successful in running this race is that we have burdens to abandon. We not only have a race to run, but we have burdens to abandon. Burdens that need to be abandoned. And one of my favorite hymns, the writer reminds us that in this life we experience many dangers, toils, and snares. These are the things that threaten to cause us to fail in running the race of the Christian life. What do we do with them? Hebrews says we get rid of them. We get rid of them. He says, lay aside anything that is going to hinder us in living the Christian life. This, this imagery of lay aside is uh, of, of stripping off excess clothes or excess weights and baggage. So I think about whenever we watch the, 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 the Summer Olympics, 
And there's the track and field portion when the guys and the gals show up. They're in sweatpants and track pants and they've got big jackets on. Some of them have hats. I even saw one lady had this big massive scarf. And about 60 seconds or 90 seconds, two minutes, whatever it is, whatever the time they give us, okay, you got to be, runners have to take the field. Suddenly they start stripping that stuff off. It's gone. The pants come off, the jackets come off, the hats come off, the sweaters come off. Some of those people run in... Well, I've seen bathing suits with more material. But the, the point is, they want to get every bit of excess weight free from their body, free from encumbering them, because they know extra weight equals time, and time equals metal. And they want that metal. So they want the least amount of time, the least amount of weight. And likewise, Hebrews is saying, if you're going to run the race, you need to not be hindered by anything. You need to strip these things off yourself, get rid of them that you might not be hindered. What are we supposed to strip away? First of all, we are told to abandon wicked entanglements. To abandon wicked entanglements. And that should be pretty obvious, to be honest. Lay aside every sin which clings so closely. This is probably one of the clearest expectations, even commands that we have in the Bible, that we are to be holy, as God is holy. There is the expectation that as His people, we will be pursuing holiness. We will be getting rid of, killing, casting off sin. Some of you are in a community groups reading a book all about doing that. We've been saved, we've been adopted by God, we're made His people. He's holy, so we should be holy. But understand, sin doesn't just fall off. You know, the, you know, those runners are not like the Flash in the comics where, you know, he sees danger, so he just takes off running and his street clothes vaporize off and he pulls his, his hood on, he's already in the costume and he's running. That doesn't happen with a Christian life. We don't just take off in the race and, and sin flies off, disintegrates as we run and holiness is suddenly there waiting for us. No, 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 no. We have to work for it. We have to earn it. We have to strive and press on. In Ephesians, that... I prayed over before this sermon in chapter 4, we are given the command, put off the old self and your former way of life, and now put on Christ and the new way of living, the new way of thinking in Him. I think Hebrews here, although certainly he would say all sin, that would apply to, I think what he might have in mind here, those sins that uh, the old writers call besetting sins. In other words, those things that we always seem to struggle with. Those sins that always seem to be clinging closely to us that we can never quite get away. I think he's saying, look at those things that society probably calls character flaws and say, I'm not content to just say, well, that's who I am. No. No. As Christians, we know better. We, we all have character flaws because our characters are sinful. But God wants to refine our characters. He wants to remove the flaws, renew us into the image of Christ. And so we deal with these things because what we know is that these besetting sins are not just character flaws, that they are the, that they are the things that we have conditioned ourselves to do in response to temptation. They are the overflow of our sinful hearts. And what Hebrews says, if we're going to be successful in running the Christian life, then we need to get rid of those entanglements. Sin entangles us and trips us off just like we started running with our shoes tied together, or worse. We're in the midst of the run and we stepped in a coil of barbed wire. He says, unless you get out of that thing, you're not running well. You're not running successfully. You're not going to endure. So he says we need to abandon our wicked entanglements. But notice also he says we need to abandon weighty hindrances. We need to abandon weighty hindrances. Now, what I think we need to 
be clear about is this is different than sin. Hebrews says, lay aside every weight and sin. We talked about the sin. What are these weights? Well, I think these are the things that are not inherently sinful. They are amoral people, things, activities in our life. And yet, when we give them too much prominence, when they get out of the normal orbit of priority in our lives, they begin to weigh us down. They, they hinder us from focusing on God and being close to God in the way that we should. They're too big in our life and therefore they become a problem for us. Think about all of the obligations and responsibilities that we have in this life. Think about our jobs. Think about our spouses and our children and our school and our friends. These things aren't sinful. All of these things are good gifts from God. But what happens when the opinion of your friends becomes more important than God's wisdom in our life? What happens when good grades in school become more important than pursuing godly character? What happens when spending time with your family becomes so important that it chokes out time for you to spend with God's family? What happens when money to pay for bills and food and fun becomes the all-consuming drive of our life that dethrones Christ and His call for us to be generous and sacrificial and giving and spending for the sake of His kingdom? Hebrews calls us to think about even those things that are good, that are not sinful in our life, but have no longer been received as gifts and they have become burdens to us in our race. Remember what Jesus warned about in the parable of the sower? There are some who hear the word of God, but their faith is choked out by the cares of the world. Does that mean that you can sin so severely, you can be so weighed down that you lose the salvation that God has given to you? No. But what it does mean is that in the course of running, you become weighed down you become consumed with the things of this world and what it reveals is that you never were saved in the first place. And what Hebrews is warning is that we do not let that happen to us. That we fix our eyes on Christ and we run. And we begin to throw aside even the good things that may be too important in our lives. Much to the chagrin of my children we were talking last night and i said mommy and i need to talk more about this because we haven't talked about it yet but i think we may need to just turn the tv off for a month and see what happens i think that was about the worst thing i could have said to them but tv is not bad there are bad things on television and we need to exercise wisdom but tv is not inherently a bad thing there's news there's all kinds of things but you know what the reality is sometimes things just have too much weight in our life and we need to scale back. Sometimes we need to have a complete fast so we can, with clarity, without the thing staring us in the face, determine how much weight does this thing actually have. Now, there's so much more we could say here. Very practically, I want, you to incur, I want to encourage you to do something this afternoon. If you've not been taking notes before, pull that out. Pull out a pen and, 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 and write this down. First of all, you say, this afternoon? Yeah, this afternoon. Don't wait. Because if, if you wait till tonight, if you think, I'll do it after community group, or I'll do it before I go to bed, I'll do it tomorrow after work, or what, you, you won't do it. Your sinful heart will come up with every excuse in the world not to do this, and it'll never happen. But what I want you to do is take a few minutes with your phone or your tablet or good old-fashioned pen and paper, and I want you to begin making a list. So this is what, this is what you want you to write down. Make a list. Make a list. What are you going to make a list of? Two things. First of all, make a list of those sins that you need to deal with. 
sins that you know right now God is telling you this is an ongoing problem in your life. Write them down. Okay? We, we, you know, as Sinclair Ferguson said, we, we, don't, we don't need a name it and claim it theology. We need a name it and slay it theology. Name your sin for what it is and let's work at killing it in our life. But secondly, then you need to make a second list of non-sinful things that are weighing you down. And I don't know what those things are for you. It could be movies, it could be websites, it could be books, it could be games, it could be sports, it could be money, it could be people. There could be people in your life that are weighing you down, that you're spending too much time with, that you're giving too much importance to. Be specific on these lists. And when you're done, start praying. That's number two. Make a list. Number two, start praying. Start praying. Ask forgiveness for your sins. Ask forgiveness for wasted time and opportunities. Ask for wisdom and thinking through how to refocus your life. And then pray for grace to set these things aside. Tuck this thing in your Bible. Pull it out every day until it clicks in your mind, until you see God begin to work. And then I would also say, share your list with someone else. If you're married, share it with your spouse. If you have kids, maybe even share it with your kids. Encourage them to share it with you so that you can be praying for one another, that you can help hold one another accountable, but you can be calling down God's will and God's grace in your life. Share it with your community group so that together you can fight the fight of faith. We're never called to fight, to run individually. We're called to do it together with others. The way to run the race that God has set for us is to abandon our burdens. But secondly and more importantly, to focus on the fact that we have a Savior to follow. We have a Savior to follow. Hebrews has said that we must run the race of the Christian life. We must run it well. Thus we should identify sin and wait and lay them aside. Now, he says, run that race, reject those burdens, and do it by looking to Jesus the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Jerry Bridges is known for saying, preach the gospel to yourself. And it's a verse just like this that lends support to that very helpful exhortation. Hebrews says, the way to live the life of faith is by fixing your eyes, by looking to the object of your faith and moving on. You understand that faith does not save. If you don't know that, write it down. Faith does not save. Faith connects you to the Savior. Jesus saves. And faith in Him is what allows and acquires salvation. But more than that, not just the grace for salvation, the grace for sanctification. So just like prayer doesn't do anything. But God does something, and prayer is your way of connecting to God. So also, faith by itself is worthless. There are lots of people today who have a lot of faith in a lot of things. There are a lot of people that have faith in Apple to fill out their their stock portfolio and make them lots of money. There are people that have faith in a false god named Allah and a pantheon of millions of gods in Hinduism that go by all kinds of different names. They are sincere. They are devout. Some of them put us to shame. But it's worthless because they're not connected to the one true living God. The only bedrock source of help and salvation. And so when we think about that, it's important we understand that, that we look to Jesus. We don't say, well, I believe. But believe what? What are you going to believe? Who are you going to believe? And Hebrews says, Jesus is the object of our faith. He is the one that we're looking to. He is the one that we're trusting. He is the one that we're running towards. 
Hebrews says the way to live this life of faith, the way to run, is by looking to our Savior. What kind of a Savior is He? First, He's a Savior who encourages faith. He's a Savior who encourages faith. We're told in verse 2 that we look to Jesus, the founder of our faith. Now, following on from chapter 11, this is not just the faith, as in the, the faith that we profess, that is, the doctrine that we believe. No, I think this is the kind of faith that we define as believing, the believing response to God's promises. We are trusting Him. Jesus Himself is the founder of this kind of faith. Not in the sense that He is the first person to ever trust a promise by God, and that trust is seen in His obedience, but rather the way in which He trusted God, the way in which He displayed His faith in His Father, was so different, so perfect, that He becomes the standard for all faith. He becomes the embodiment of Psalm 18, which Hebrews quoted earlier in, in chapter 2, to, where, where the words are put in Jesus' mouth, declaring of God, I will put my trust in Him. Hebrews says when you're reading through Psalm 18, and you're thinking about Jesus Christ as the fulfillment of those psalms, you should read Psalm 18 too, and, or, or, Psalm 18 too, and see Jesus in the incarnation saying, in my coming, I will put my trust in God, and therefore you should imitate that trust. Because he's not just faith's uh, founder, he's also faith's perfecter. That's what it says, the founder and the perfecter of it. Now what's that mean? It means he brings our faith to its perfect end. He brings it to completion. The work that he accomplished, that he completed as our Savior, makes him not only the object of our faith, but also provides the means by which we now have perfect access to God and will one day be perfected in righteousness. That's what Hebrews has been arguing over and over and over again. Don't go back to the old covenant sacrifices. They're worthless compared to Christ. He is the perfecter of our faith. He is the thing that we've been looking towards. He is, the, he is the one who has accomplished everything to bring about the perfection of God's salvation. So, so how does he encourage our faith in him and our faith in God's promises? Hebrews says it's because he became the founder and perfecter of our faith. And he did it in the fullness of his humanity. Notice Hebrews doesn't call him Christ. He doesn't call him Jesus Christ. He doesn't call him the Lord Jesus Christ. What does he say? He said, looking to Jesus. And if we read chapter 1, we know he does not deny the full deity of the Son of God. But what, what Hebrews is pointing out is our temptation to say, Jesus as our example, yeah, right, he's God. And he says, no, 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 he's God, but he's fully human. He's not just the risen Christ, he's Jesus. And as Jesus fully human, just like us. He not only experienced life like us, he experienced temptation like us, and he persevered in his faith in God. He believed the promises of his Father more than he believed the promises of sin and temptation. Therefore, as we strive to run with endurance, we look to him. He becomes the greatest encouragement of our faith. But how was Jesus' faith demonstrated? Hebrews reminds us that Jesus' faith is demonstrated in his obedience so that he became a savior who endured suffering. He became a savior who endured suffering. Our salvation comes to us freely, but it was not cheap. Jesus, Jesus endured the cross, despising the shame. Why did he do that? For the joy that was set before him. Now, I think about that and I think about our lives today and most of us are incredibly quick to run from pain. Not even just like physical 
I'm going to get hurt pain, but emotional pain. I don't want to feel that. I don't want to experience that. I don't want to have to go through that. And we turn around and we run. And Jesus did the opposite. Remember what we saw in Luke? He set his face like flint towards Jerusalem. What's in Jerusalem? The cross. Jesus determines to go towards and endure pain and suffering because he knows what's going to be on the other side. He knows what's waiting for him both in the midst of that pain, but also what's going to be accomplished through that pain. So what does he do? He endures the pain of the cross, the pain of the cross, the agony of spikes ripping through his flesh as he is nailed to that beam. But more than that, he endured the shame of the cross, the shame of the cross. This method of execution for for slaves and vile criminals was, frankly, humiliating, fully exposed hanging before everyone for your crimes as an example to others. Jesus endured that. In fact, it says he shamed the shame. It says he despised the shame. He said, it says, I, I, I don't care about the shame. Why? Because of the joy that is set before me. I know what's going to be accomplished through it. He endured the pain, he endured the shame, and he finally endured the rage of God's wrath. Hebrews doesn't say he endured crucifixion. He says he endured the cross. What's the difference? The cross of Christ is more than his death. There he satisfied God's wrath against our sin. He stood condemned in our place. And he accomplished all of these things. He endured all of this suffering. How? By looking to the joy that was set before him. Jesus knew that through his suffering, his father would be glorified as the one who provided righteous forgiveness of sins. He didn't just say, ah, forget about it, don't worry about it, don't do it again, everything's good. It doesn't matter where you're at, what you believe, everyone's just going to be heaven, it'll be alright. Jesus, God didn't do that. He said, sin must be dealt with, and I'm going to deal with it by pouring out my wrath on a substitute. So that my justice is satisfied and my mercy can flow free. How much more should we endure suffering for the joy that is set before us? We deserve the cross. We deserve hell. And God doesn't give that to us when we trust in Christ. See, sin always makes a deal with us. Sin always says, just like in the, in the wilderness with Jesus, if you do what God says, it's going to be difficult. It's going to be painful. You're going to suffer. You're not going to like it. But if you embrace me, if you embrace this sin, it's going to be so much easier for you. You'll have an emotional escape. You'll have a physical way of escape. You will fulfill your heart's desire. The problem is, there is an immediate joy. There is an immediate happiness. Until we bite all the way into the apple and see that the core is rotten. That it's disgusting and vile and that we're not not getting what was promised to us in the temptation. So what we need to do is be able to look past it and say, yeah, but... What God offers is better. What God offers is lasting, eternal joy that overflows now into my life so that I can say, I don't need the sin, I need my Savior. I don't, I don't need instant gratification, I need eternal grace. And we are able to press on and endure in pain and suffering. You wonder, say, how those martyrs survive how do they keep going they're being beaten in prison it's because they know they have something better in christ they have a joy that is set before them and allows them to run with perseverance 
And therefore, if we are going to run the same way, we must look to Jesus, who also endured that, that we can as well. Third, we look to Jesus because in him we have a Savior with exalted authority. A Savior with exalted authority. Notice where Jesus is now. He has endured the shame of the cross, and now he is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. That's part of the joy that was set before him as well. Not just the salvation of sinners, but his return to the glory and the fellowship with God the Father. That exalted Savior gives us hope. Not only for our own exaltation one day, but that God will complete the salvation that he has begun in us. There is an end that is coming. But on the way there, what do we do with this exalted, authoritative Savior? Do we obey him? Do we trust him? Or do we say... Thanks, but no thanks. I just want Jesus as my Savior. I don't want him as my Lord. Well, guess what? That's not an option for biblical Christianity. That's an option for counterfeit Christianity. But Paul says the Christian confession, not only in the New Testament times, but down to the ages, has been Jesus is Lord. Christ is King. He has an authority over our life. But he not just has an authority to tell us what to do. He also now at the right hand of God, he has the authority to give us the support and the blessing that we need to fulfill his commands. John Owen says, here's why we look to Jesus. A constant view of the glory of Christ will revive our souls and cause our spiritual lives to flourish and thrive. Our souls will be revived by the transforming power with which beholding Christ is always accompanied. Faith will fix our souls in Christ who will fill us with delight and satisfaction. The reason why the spiritual life in our souls decays and withers is because we fill our minds full of other things and these things weaken the power of grace. But when the mind is filled with thoughts of Christ and His glory, these things will be expelled. When we behold the glory of Christ by faith, every grace in us will be stirred up. This is how our spiritual life is revived. And that's Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. As it serves as a capstone for our series on being the community of Christ. And right now, after having heard that, our biggest danger... The biggest danger for us is that we will hear those things. We will nod our heads. We may even say, thank you, God. Maybe even spend some time thinking about it. But in the end, we will let it have little effect on our lives. There's a reason I call this message serving by the grace of Christ. The Christian life, the running of a race, is about more than just personal salvation. It's more than just about getting right with God. It starts there. That's the foundation, the fountainhead, but... Though it starts with assurance that Jesus of our Savior, it goes on in serving Jesus as our Savior. Living with Christ should lead us to living for Christ. Being saved by Christ should lead us to serving for Christ. Therefore, we not only need to hear all of the encouragements from this morning and the previous weeks that we've been given about what God has done for us, but we also need to receive the equipping and the empowering that He promises. We need to plan for what we're going to do with that. How are we going to acquire the grace that He has promised so that we can fulfill the commands he has given 
How can we plan to be active in the strength and the direction he provides? How can we plan to actually live as the community of Christ that he's called us to be? One way to do that, it's not the only way, but one way, one helpful way is to think through a personal disciple-making plan. Because that's what, that's what God has called us to do. That's what it means to serve Christ. We are called to be making disciples. And so right now the deacons are going to come and they're very going to quickly, they're going to hand out this little, this little tool for you. And, and it's going to help you be intentional about how you plan to make disciples, how we serve by the grace of Christ. And you get that? I don't want you to look through it yet. Just set it aside and just listen for the next few minutes and then you'll have all the time that you need to look through that. The usefulness of this document, it's not in its originality or its creativity. Its usefulness it is, is in getting you to be thoughtful and specific and write things down. It asks you to think through and to answer six key questions. Number one, how will I fill my mind with God's truth? How will I fuel my affections for God? How will I share God's love as a witness in the world? How will I show God's love as a member of a church? How will I spread God's glory among all peoples? How will I make disciple makers among a few people? Now, whether you've thought through it or not, those six questions, their implications are not anything modern, they're not anything hip. They come right from the Gospels and the letters of the New Testament. This is basic Christianity. But so often we take what is meant to be basic, we assume it, and we move on to something else, and we don't actually do the basics. We don't live them out. If you say, I'm not sure I agree with all those things, then you come immediately after the service, or you send us an email, and Pastor Joe or Pastor Richard or myself be glad to sit you down and show you verse after verse after verse after verse why those six questions need to be answered by everyone who claims to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. I want us as Crossway Church to get focused on living as the community of Christ. There is a danger for every Christian, including myself, to see the church as something that is primarily for us. That, that when I come, I'm coming because I'm getting something. And I hope you do get something. But it's about more than just getting something. It's about doing something as well. When people are looking for a church so often, what do they do? They have... They have their list. It's got to have this for me. It's got to have this for my kids. It's got to have this kind of music and this kind of ministry. That's not the mindset that the, that the New Testament presents for how we find a church, for why we go to a church. The New Testament shows that the church is a place where we join joyfully with other Christians to make and mature more Christians. When we come together, we're being trained to make disciples. We're training others to make disciples. Or we're supporting others while they're involved in being trained or training others to make disciples. We're doing that all together in a loving, committed community, worshiping Christ together as His disciples. And, and frankly, some of you are in this church as members and you already understand that, you believe that, you've embraced it fully, and I appreciate that. But all of us are in different places along that spectrum. Some of us think absolutely, some of us say, I'm not so sure. And the question is, can we get on the same page? Can we all be together moving in the same direction as one local body of believers, one faith family, so that we can accomplish together not only the life, but the ministry that God calls us to be? Can we all be running together in 
the race that we've been called to, that he has set out for us. If you're a Christian, you're not called to sit on the sidelines. You're not called to warm a bench. You're not even called to just stand and cheer the team on. You are called to run. This is what it comes down to, loved ones. If we are the people of Christ, then we should be living like the community of Christ. That means not just living for ourselves, but living for our King. That means striving to advance His kingdom together. And from the encouragement we've seen this morning, the way to do that is by throwing off sin and weight, looking to Jesus and running the race that He has set before us. Father, can we do that this morning only with Your power? Only with your grace, only with your spirit convicting us, showing us where we're not doing that and enabling us to move forward with faith. Father, I pray this morning that in the coming days and weeks that not, not this sermon, Lord, not, not this imperfect packaging of your word, but your word, Hebrews 12, 1 and 2, that they would lodge in our minds as we think about the calling that you have placed on our lives. As they stand as a, a kind of summary application for all of the wonderful truth that the elders have been presenting to us over the last few weeks about your work and bringing us together and making us to be and sustaining us in our life as a community of Christ. Father, help us not to, not to be vague in our attentions. Help us not to assume that we're just going to serve the way that we should by falling into occasions and opportunities. Father, it won't happen. We're too sinful. We're too stubborn. We're too set in our ways. We're too selfish for the things that we want. Father, we need you to be merciful to us, to help us to plan and be disciplined to fulfill that plan. Not so that we can feel good about ourselves or look better than someone else, but so that, Father, we can know we have been faithful in serving your Son, our King, our Savior, who gave up his life for us. Father, may we honor the risen Christ by how we fulfill his command to make disciples, how we fulfill his command to be together in the church that he died for and that he promised he would build. Father, we ask these things in his name. Amen.